This is Nathan with the Mighty BOG from the Columbia River Gorge, and I'm here at Yakima Valley Hops, the place where homebrewers can buy the freshest hops. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Late Edition for YakimaValleyHops.com and SpotHops.com. My name is Caleb Schwecki and welcome to the heart of hop country. We are right in the middle of hop harvest here in the Yakima Valley of Washington State and things are going great. We already have some whole cone hops in from the field available for purchase. We have Cascade, Centennial, Amarillo, Chinook. So it's time to brew with the new harvest and see what it has to offer. All initial indications are great. And we don't have too much longer to wait to enjoy the fruits of the harvest because the fifth annual Yakima Valley Hops Fresh Hop Party is coming up, uh, yeah, less than two weeks away. Hope to see you there. There's going to be a bunch of good Fresh Hop beers. Can't wait. Good music, good food, good friends. It'll be a fun time. Hope to see you there. But let's not dilly-dally around, let's jump right into this episode because it's a special one. John Gorman, he is a veteran of the beer industry, he's experienced it top to bottom, back to front, he's been on the hop side of things, he's been a brewer, he's worked with grains, he knows it all, and he's been working in it for a very long time. It was a really rare opportunity to get to pick his brain, find out what he knows about this wonderful industry, see what he thinks, see where it's going. Lots of fun stuff to talk about, so let's get right into it. John Gorman. Enjoy. My name is John Gorman, G-O-R-M-A-N. I've been in the beer business a total in my life of um, 55 years. I'm older than dirt, 76, but this has been an enchanting uh, association with the beer business. Although I'm freshly retired, I still am a Haas ambassador and uh, I participate in functions that uh, have to do with brewery customers, where I feel most at home. But I've passed through a lot. I, I started out, I don't know whether you want to know that or not, but started out at the Schaefer Brewing Cup in 1962, driving a forklift during college. And in the summertime, <laughs> pay the packaging plant. And then uh, I graduated and wound up uh, going uh, to them and establishing myself as um, an apprentice brewer and they hadn't had one in a long time and so it was going to be a 36-month program where I learned all aspects of brewing and even the the Teamsters Union at first was against it but they sort of came around and so I I did every job there was to do from this old brewery up in Albany New York which was originally a Bevowick brewery built in the late 1800s, and it was pretty old and pretty antiquated. But Schaefer started to, you know, they started to expand. It was really quite a facility, and uh, during the course of 36 months, I learned the brewing business. And then 1980, oh, excuse me, in 1969, uh, I went to Wallerstein. That was a brewer's school. The likes of uh, Joe Hertrick from. Um, he was from Anheuser Busch and Stroh's, etc. There's a lot of guys that were just starting out in the brewing business that were, became very famous and very, very successful. But we were just young guys, you know, and we were starving and we drank a lot of beer. <laughs> it was kind of a funny. I'll give tell you a funny story. This is Wallenstein Brewer's School. Um, 
we're each allotted five cases of beer from our brewery per week for testing. And it was supposed to be for testing at the laboratories of Wallerstein on Staten Island. And after the second week, we had to double it to 10 because we were drinking everything and we had nothing to test. It was, <laughs> the group, the capacity to drink was quite high. And it was just an amazing, uh, we just, the beer was just so good. And, you know, we were in amongst brewers and talking beer and guys from Molson's, guys from Pittsburgh Brewing, guys from Anheuser-Busch. We were all in this one young group and it was when the beer business was really jumping. It started to jump and we had a lot of fun. We drank a lot of beer <laughs> and somehow we graduated from brewing school. Somehow, somehow. Uh, how long was the program at brewing school? Uh, brewing school was um, five months. They put us up at the Barbizon Plaza Hotel in Manhattan and we had to take the Staten Island Ferry every day to the La Wallerstein Laboratories. Uh, it was, it rivaled, at the, at the time it rivaled and sometimes surpassed uh, the, the Siebel's Brewing School uh, in Chicago. And so this was the preferred brewing school. A lot of us, it was our first real taste of New York City and, and, and so getting to, on the Staten Island Ferry gave us an opportunity to uh, sober up on the way to school. <laughs> yeah, you didn't have to worry about drinking and driving. No, no. You had to take the subway down and then you had to stand on the front deck to sort of wake yourself up because you're up till three o'clock in the morning the night before. <laughs> we weren't the best well-behaved you, you might have thought, you know, but we were studious. We knew we had to graduate. We knew we had to cover the material, but we enjoyed ourselves along the way. Interesting. Okay, so um, what was the first year that you learned how to brew when you were with Schaefer? Uh, Schaefer Brewing Company was uh, actually in 1964. Five okay. is when I was in the midst of my uh, apprenticeship and I started out uh, in the brew house and that's when I uh, the, did the initial stint there. Okay. And you, you before you mentioned that you were most recently with Haas, so yes. John I. Haas, the, you know, right. and yeah, they do, do all sorts of fun stuff. Now, how has the industry changed? as a practice, as a business, as a science from when you started in 1965 to most recently when you retired? Well, you know, uh, people always talked about the big three in the 50s and the 60s. Uh, the big brewers were the ones that had the, were predominant in the industry. They were big and they were successful, but they were losing ground all the time because the beers were some people uh, accuse it of being uh, bland, but it really wasn't. Their talent was more than people give them credit for. In the industry then, and they were struggling for barrels, and they were really basically the, the population, the beer drinking population wasn't growing. What it was is that it was cannibalizing each other's customers at the time. And they weren't trying to appeal to the youthful people that we do now. When the first craft movement was in the early 90s and the craft industry, people that started, the brewers, that were the craft brewers were starting, they could make anything and it would sell. However, something kind of funny happened and that was that they relied too much on their brewing skills but they knew nothing about sanitation. And sanitation was important but what they failed to realize is as competition grew and they started bottling, for example, they went right to bottling or the, 
their beard got a little older. First batch was usually a clean batch, but after that, if they didn't weren't diligent for sanitation, that should go for home brewers, anybody. The biggest single thing is sanitation. Making certain your vessels are clean, maybe no contaminants, the wild yeast, all of those things are things that make a good beer and consistent. And that's where the Anheuser-Busch, the Millers, the Rainiers, the Olympia, all of these people were good. Anheuser-Busch is a perfect example. You can, you can, they made lager beer, they made Budweiser, but you can get Budweiser in Jacksonville, Florida, and, and Budweiser in Washington State made in California, and it tasted exactly the same. Their practices for sanitation, their diligence for specifications, people might not like, and, and craft and home brewers may say, well, it was like, it was weak, it was not a good beer, but it was consistent. And that's a trick in itself. So you're kind of drawing the distinction between like this craft and macro with craft, you know, kind of bucking some of the established trends. What right. is something that the current craft industry, craft brewers can learn from the macro guys? Well, it's, uh, it's the sanitation end of things, specifications. As you know, in today's world, you can go to a Total Wine and More, for example, and they have 300 different brands of beer. Everybody's looking for that next interesting beer. The longer their beer stands on their shelf, if your sanitation's practices are not up to snuff, it's gonna deteriorate the longer it sits on the shelf. That's what's gonna, people may buy it once, but if they have a bad experience, they're not gonna buy it again. They're gonna go try something else. That's what we learned from the, the mega brewers. And these craft brewers, are, 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 you gotta give them a lot of credit, even the home brewers. You give them credit for knowing and using their imagination. When I was brewing beer, we had two varieties. We had Cascades and Clusters. That was it. Those are the things. Now you have a huge amount of varieties. These varieties were driven by the craft industry, looking for something unique and different to make their beer distinctive. And they succeeded. When or can it? get to be too much, too much selection, too many different varieties to uh, choose from? You know, everybody always says it's about 179 varieties now. There's a huge amount of, let's face it, the, the elements of adding hops, which is you can add it, you add it in the kettle, you can add it in the cool ship, you can add it in the fermenter. What varieties, what amounts, what combinations? You get 179 varieties in this world, that's quite a, that's quite a mix. And I don't think is I don't know how, what the odds are. I'm not a mathematician, but how many combinations and and percentages and ratios can you use? We're using 179 varieties, quite a few. Anyway, I think that uh, they're gonna you're gonna find some hops that are falling out of favor, like Millennium. Cascades will always be around. Tetanangs, which is hard to find today. There's two ways of looking at this from a financial point of view from the farmer, the grower. What is he, well, he wants to make, make a living. He wants to make a profit. Can he do it growing tetanags or can grow a certain variety? If it's fallen out of favor, the answer is no. And that's where, you know, good, good dealers and people like yourselves, Yakima Valley Hops can guide these people and say, look, uh, you know, these, these are falling out of favor. Uh, they're going to be harder to find and they're going to cost you more. 
Uh, maybe there's a new variety out there. Maybe there's something that you So I don't think it's a saturation yet. I think there's plenty more room for innovation. Well, what are some of the more recent varieties that have really stood out to you? Oh, I mean, like El Dorado. I mean, um, uh, CLS Farms has done a great job with that. Galaxy uh, out of Australia. That's one that uh, certainly stands out. Well, in Galaxy, we can you can speak a little on that because <laughs> you kind of had a major role in bringing that to the states. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And and uh, I got it was it's it's a funny story because about nine years ago, I had a very good relationship with our managing director at Hop Products Australia, Tim Lord, and you know they have pride of Ringwood and they had a bunch of uh, different varieties, but they were ho hum with varieties. They weren't anything outstanding. So I was having a telephone conversation with Tim about it and I had worked with him at um, in Southeast Asia at, uh, in Bangkok with, with uh, Beer Thai. During this course of the conversation we talked about Galaxy because it was a new variety they had. He wasn't, wasn't sure it was going to go or not but they were looking for a lifeline. I would say that they were very close to stopping the hop operation in Tasmania because of lack of business. Were they only growing Galaxy? No, they were growing uh, Pride of Ringwood hmm. and a couple of different ones and I can't recall right now, but they were innocuous ones that didn't mean much to the industry. Okay. So how long had Galaxy been around at that point? Oh, they were about, uh, this was the second or third year that it had been grown. Okay. So I took it upon myself, uh, you know, the, the, the line of authority at Haas has always been very good and very open. However, I took um, this matters into my own hand and ordered four pallets into the United States nine years ago. Those four pallets of Galaxy arrived in pellet form, and I took the liberty of getting it, of giving it away. That's how Galaxy got started. I gave it away. And how and many how many pounds were on those pallets? Eight eighty. Eight hundred. It was eight hundred and eighty pounds at the time. So I gave them away to the New Belgium Brewing Companies, to the big ones, to the people you know, that I thought might find it useful. And I was in big trouble with my boss because I hadn't asked permission to do that. And yes, I overstepped my bounds and I probably should have deserved to be in trouble, but I didn't care. <coughs> and to this day, I was proven right because they're selling, they can't get enough of galaxies and they keep expanding. And um, I think it's gonna, you know, it's, it's far from reached, it, reached its goal or reached how much people can use because it seems to be very, very successful wherever it's being used. I, exactly, yeah. I don't know if people can make a, make a bad beer with it. You know, I've seen it in so many different combinations, but basically I think it's, it's really been a hit. And I'm really proud of that. I, you know, I took a risk and, and uh, I got in trouble for it, but uh, I get over, they get over it when I sold about 300 tons, metric tons in a year and could sell a lot more. That makes those, uh, yeah, couple pallets seem a little. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So, do you think do you think Galaxy found the market at the right time and place, or do you think Galaxy drove the market? No, I think Galaxy found the market at the right place. Kudos go for the brewer, the brewer that had the imagination and the skill set to use it properly. Because I'm sure that there was some bad Galaxy out there, uh, not bad Galaxy, but people that misused it and it didn't fare well. Those are the kinds of things that 
each brewer has to decide individually because it's a financial risk to their owners of the breweries. So they have to make that decision. And that's a, and it has a big influence on the beer. And it's come into prominence over the last 20 years of how important hops really are. So I think it's a real uh, tribute to the brewers more than anything that success is predicated on the, way, the proper use. Could you speak a little to the process or the thought process that a brewery needs to go through when you come at them with a new hop? You know, well, you say, here, brew with this. Well, okay, I, I, it's become, become a lot more sophisticated over the last years. You have flavor wheels now, and craft breweries drove this. We, the, everybody goes into a lot more depth because of the characteristics within the hop variety. When you get a hop variety coming along and it has characteristics, whether it be grapefruit, citrus, some sort of spice or something along those lines, you want to make sure that you look at it and evaluate it and you, and the, you as a brewer have to decide for yourself where can it be best be used and how can I use it to promote a good beer. You can first you got to decide what kind of beer you want. You want an ale, you want a lager, you want a pilsen, you want any of those things. It's got to be that kind of product that you want to aim at and you have to evaluate what hop you can use. And there's new hop varieties being developed all the time, but things like Galaxy, um, Citra, those are the winners that have really influenced it because of its individual characteristics that make a good beer. And there's not too many people that haven't made a good beer out of Galaxy or, or Citra. What do you think it takes? You mentioned, you know, that individual characteristic. What do you think it takes for a hop to be the next Galaxy or Citra? It has to be, first of all, it has to be the characteristics that uh, provide with a, a unique taste in the end, or a unique aroma. Everybody knows that people, when you pour a glass of beer, there's a foam on the top. It should be about an inch. Your first sense that goes over to, when you go to drink it is your nose. To get that bouquet, that bouquet is being released by the carbonation, yes, but the foam contains the aromas of the hop characteristics. And you can just have that, and it, that sense is what's the first thing that gives you a pleasurable beer. You want you want people to come. I don't know about anybody else, but hey, Caleb, the the um, when I have a beer, a new beer that I haven't tasted, uh, I don't discount the technical aspects of it, but. You can, I think you can get sometimes get too close with the technical aspects of characteristics. The question I always propose to myself and say to myself, would I drink more than one? Because that to me makes beer good to me. Do you have a difficult time stepping back and actually enjoying a beer? Or are you judging? Are you critiquing? Uh, I don't judge a beer from a technical point of view when I'm out socially with my wife, with my friends. I go out and drink a beer. Is it refreshing? Is it tasteful? Perfect example is Field 41. Field 41 is a great beer. From Bale Breaker. Bale Breaker, yeah. And when I go out and I order a beer, if they have Bale Breaker, Field 41, that's what I'll drink. Well, because and that's, wait, what's the hot bill in there? There's a little citra yeah, Well, it's citra, it's Simcoe. I don't know what else is in it, but I think it's primarily Simcoe. I heard that they started adding a 
uh, adding a dusting of laurel right at the end. Could have been, yeah. Um, well, but they're they're coming out another hop, another hop that just came out. It's called Sabro, and I think it's the experimental one. Is, they had numbers on it was four thirty eight. Sabro, it's and it's called Sabro now, and it gives you, and, and this is what made it a hit, and, and and why they developed it from these experimental farms that Haas has, is that it gave you the taste that it had that the beer had been aged in an oak bar or a bourbon barrel, and it gave you that bourbon smoky taste mm -hmm. without ever touching a barrel. People saw that as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. 438 uh, Sabro now, is, that has some Neo-Mexicanus genetics behind it? You know, I, I honestly don't know. I wish I could tell you. I'm not technical enough to remember that. Right. I, I, I think I recall reading that. Well, that just kind of begs the question, if hops can produce that smoky flavor, that oak flavor, is there a flavor that's like highly pursued right now? You know, everybody from a craft brewing side and the and the, the regional craft brewer is looking for the next best taste so they're they're trying they're using their skills to develop new beers that perhaps have never been put on the market before i don't you know some people are looking for that pine taste that pine nut taste that or licorice overflow or and it's trying to find the balance and they usually accomplish that by a combination of hops and they're added at different spots in a place. Hmm. You, you uh, are the sole proprietor of coming up with a beer. and That's why you got to give these craft guys so much credit. They have got imagination. They're willing to take a risk. And another thing that where nationals have fallen short is the, 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 the properties of making a decision from the lowest guy who experiments and comes up with a, a recipe to the person up in management, further up in management, that can make the decision to go with it is a lot shorter than the national brands. National brands have to go through a foray of marketing people and science and get approvals and things of that. It's, it's, they can't, it's like a, being a smaller ship. A smaller ship can move and turn a lot faster than the great big ship. Right, exactly. Well, and then, you know, even having homebrewers being down on the smallest ships, little paddle boats, maybe. <laughs> yeah, but that's good. Even uh, these homebrewers, I mean, they'll come up with recipes. They're skilled people. I, I, I envision homebrewers moving into the main mainstream of brewing. There's a lot that have started out as homebrewers and now uh, are significant area brewers, guild brewers. I mean, it's Ken, Ken Grossman's a perfect example, Sierra Nevada. He used to own a bicycle shop. He used to fix bicycles. And he started in this brewing, Steve Dressler, uh, used to paint airplanes and, and, and after he got out of college and went and was a brewer with, uh, with Steve and with, I'm sorry, with Ken Grossman and graduated into being the brewmaster, finally retired. <laughs> this is how these guys get their start. Well, you mentioned back at the brewing school, you mentioned some pretty big names. Were there any beers that you guys uh, secretly brewed or like really like pet recipes that well, no, actually what we did, you know, we were pretty, we're trying to fit into the corporate life, you know, and get our start. One of the things, and I can tell you what happened to Schaefer, because that's one I'm most familiar with. They made a lager beer and it was all malt. It was 80% it was malt 
and 20% refined corn grits. Refined corn grits looks like it's what looks like white popcorn, but very soluble and uh, very easily convertible to sugars. And it really was a brew. And when you've when you put the poured that finished product into a glass, the foam was so steady, the curtain was so beautiful, the taste of a full lager was so good that it was unbelievably good. And it was a nice experience and people loved it. There was a time in Manhattan, in New York City, that uh, you couldn't get, go into a bar that didn't have a Schaefer tap. Well, what happened was is that uh, it went public in 1968 or 69. Accountants kind of took over because they had to have, uh, they have uh, uh, stakeholders that wanted results. So they went to, they went from 80%, they went down to 60% malt and yellow corn instead of refined corn because it cost less. Mm -hmm. Then they went down to 50% uh, malt and then, then they used yellow corn and fructose, which was fruit juice for conversion. And then they went to uh, corn syrup because it was cheaper. And so what happened is that head, that gloss, that beautiful protein chains that's, uh, that stood up in the foam stand just wasn't there anymore. It was like you'd pour it and the foam would collapse into the beer and it just took away something and it didn't taste the same. Well, further to, to their demise, they developed, um, uh, which I was, uh, which unfortunately I was a stakeholder in and helped develop, which is called Staypro. Washington Laboratories and Dr. Stranskoff developed this, they developed this, uh, this stuff called Staypro. And the Staypro does is encapsulated the yeast. They encapsulated the yeast so it wouldn't grow. So they automatically thought, or they went right to it, that they didn't need uh, pasteurizers. And so what happened was is that they took the pasteurizers out and used this Staypro. And the ratio originally was like five parts per million. Well, we knew that from experimentation that it went up to, if it went up to 13 parts per million, it would hit saturation. And if it hit saturation, it would start falling out of the liquid and look like mercury at the bottom of the tank. Well, when they cheapened it up with all these materials, they started, they had to add more yeast, and they increased their ratio of Staypro. And they hit saturation point, and people were complaining that they were getting headaches and Washington Laboratories and Dr. Stranskorff blew it off as being, that guys just drink too much and have a hangover. Wasn't that at all. And it was the time of the big CB era where every truck or every car had a CB radio. They'd, they'd go by the Anheuser-Busch plant in Newark, New Jersey, they call it Bubble Heaven. they go by the Schaefer plant on, on route, one, uh, route 22 in Allentown, Pennsylvania, they call it the Headache Factory. But ultimately, it led to its demise. I mean, the brand is still, available in New Mexico, I think, but uh, Miller Brewing Company bought the label and it's nothing. They had a sell of plants. They went out of, basically went out of business. But I'm, 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 I'm showing this example, but it only goes to show you that it's, it's a clear demonstration that if some breweries go down this path of trying to cheapen the product and shortcut to, to make more profit, it's, um, it's almost down a river of no return and you just don't want to you got to keep after sanitation. You got to keep after the quality, and you got to be, you got to hit that critical mass. That you got to make a good beer every single time, 
if you want you want to have a good experience for your customers and people want to come back to it well i guess on the other extreme of things how long will craft beer drinkers what will they end up paying for cuz you're starting to see some beers you know go for 100 bucks a bottle 150 bucks a bottle on some of these ridiculous barrel aged variants so if you know craft if breweries are penalized for cheapening their product at what point will they be penalized for charging too much well you know that's a good question uh, I, I don't know if I can answer that and I know I know myself I, I look at the market now and if you if you look everybody's going to cans because that's what's needed to go to the beaches and public forums and things so breweries are investing in can lines or they're investing in that portable job that goes to the brewery you supply the cans and they'll can it for you the the competition is is making it difficult if you're in the marketplace competition everybody's got cans but now they're starting to make 18 packs 24 packs they're trying to make it so that it looks it appears as if where well, you are in fact getting more for your money so this is a price this is this is starting the pricing war that probably isn't good for anybody but it's a repeat of history people don't realize that this is a repeat of history when, when breweries like Rainier, for example, in the 50s were trying to get better, Rheingold's, uh, all of these breweries, they were trying to get better. The big guys would come in into their market area, lower their price. The smaller brewery couldn't sell their beer. And so they tried to chase it down with larger packs, with, with cheaper prices, and a lot of them went out of business. Hmm. And, and, and I, I, I can see that starting to me a concern. Brewers, you know, the like Brewers Association, Charlie Papazian and his group who have done such a magnificent job uh, coordinating brewery industry and the brewers themselves, whether it be the craft or the home brewers, they, he got them all marching in the correct direction and that was great. Their hook was buy local. If you remember, it was always buy local, right? Well, they get Sierra Nevada and they build a plant on the East Coast. They get, you know, Lagunitas is spread out. Uh, New Belgium Brewing Company. All of these guys have now, they're national beers. They've defeated their own mantra of buy local. And I think it's going to probably start to bite back at them. So you said Charlie got everybody marching in the right direction. What do you see as the hurdles facing the industry as a whole? Is that the major one that you well, see? Well, competition. If you go to... You go to, I was in, I was in, uh, I was, I went with Larry Sador from Crux. He, we went on a road trip and we went down and visited breweries. And we, we, we went down to Anheuser-Busch and we went to Fairfield. We went to Russian River. Saw so Nat, uh, uh, Natalie and, and Vinny Chilerzo and they're building a new brewery. Uh, that's right there is, a, is an, an amazing story in itself. We went down. I went down a croc with Crux and Larry, and we, you know, two brewers having conversations about the market, etc. There's a danger here, and, it, and money talks, and it's dangerous. And you know, distributors. I understand they get distributed when a craft beer goes. I could be wrong, but I'm, I understand they get 30 percent for their work. And that's why I think you hear a lot of this discourse in distributors because they're looking for the next great thing. They have an entity of their own. They have a big investment. They want to go to the most popular brews, uh, brewers, and 
who sells the most and they make the 30%, they can make more. So just for a little back, to back up a little bit, you're talking about beer distributors. There's a mandatory three-tier system mandated after prohibition. So there's producers, distributors, and retailers? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there, a, lot of them, a lot of breweries can be self-distributing if they stay within the state that they're in, I understand. And I think that laws change. But uh, survivorship, you got to figure out what your aim is. Is it to get bigger? Is it to get uh, spread out? Is it, is it you want more breweries? Do you want multiple breweries? Or do you want to stay small? An anomaly is, is, is Russian River. Russian River makes products that are fantastic, magnificent. They, they, they wound up making sour beers that nobody had before, and they really took off, and they've got a great reputation. Pliny the Elder, Pliny the Younger, and these people made a decision to build a new brewery, and they're building it now, and I think their first trial brew was August the 6th. But they, they, they were smart early on because the popularity of the beer was so good that I think they pulled out of Washington and Oregon because they couldn't supply it properly. And they didn't want to leave, excuse the pun, but a bad taste in their mouth, uh, beer drinkers. And so they pulled back so that they were able to distribute and cover what they could produce. But now they're going to get bigger, so they're going to go back into Washington and back into Oregon and made their, made their footprint bigger. Well, and we've had a couple other, you know, big notable breweries just come to Washington fairly recently. Founders, yep. they made a big, yep. big entrance here in the state. So you talked a little about the three-tier system and that side of things. What do you think the effect is of AB InBev buying up hop fields in South Africa, buying up homebrew supply stores? So if there's a supply chain from the brewery to the consumer, what's the supply chain look like for the ingredients to the brewer? Well, 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 it's a mixed bag. I mean, South Africa has always been a weak sister as far as hop growing region is concerned. The southern tip of Africa has the, the, the right latitude, but it's a little farther south than it should be. And they actually have lights to complete the, the day. Hops depend upon light primarily for uh, their development. And so they have the, all fields lit up and they're lit up with a certain kind of a light. It's like a growing light. It was, it, it was Heineken originally who had most of the hop industry in South Africa. Right. Jeff Tito, who used to be, his, his parents used to own Rolling Rock in Pennsylvania. He, he's, he is a very important person for Heineken. I think he's in, in Caribbean right now, but he was in South Africa. But uh, they had an excess of hops and they, and they approached Haas at one time to see if we'd be interested in, in, in looking at, at those. And we did, we made it, we, and, and uh, we, our contact was through Miller Coors. And then it kind of fizzed out. And it fizzed out because they couldn't supply enough because their growing skills aren't as good as the one in the Yakima Valley, you know, in Oregon and Idaho. But they, they, they evidently had risen to the occasion, maybe put more fuels and gotten better at it. It's gonna be a kind of an interesting future for hops because a lot of growers are growing a lot of acres. Here in Wisconsin, Minnesota, they made big investments. Once we hit saturation point, once the production of certain varieties outgrows the market, they're gonna have excess and the prices are gonna go down. Can 
those people that are participating at a higher level of investment, can they survive the downtime and the lower pricing? That's going to be remain a question. These are big investments. Well, there um, was that Mill 95 was the, the huge facility in yeah. Idaho. Right. They're going to have a sales force and pellet plants and everything. And I guess it was growers that got together. I don't know. I don't know the intricacies of it, but man, that's a risk, especially in this day and age. You know, you, you can't sell on price alone. That's short-lived relationships. This, this, build, this, this industry, as is your customers, as my customers know, that it's based on relationships. When the hops are in excess and the prices are down, it's okay, you can go to anybody, but if you get a responsible supplier that will take care of you in tough times, those, that's the more importance of having a relationship. We can do things better and we'll, we'd be willing to do things more with that kind of a relationship rather than, I'll go for the lowest price, because lowest price is very deceiving, as you well know. Exactly, well, and there is a difference between quantity and quality. You know, there is a difference in quality of product, yield, all that stuff. Um, well, the actual process is, 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 is a defining in nature too, because the various processes, I mean, they, you know, they, it's like, Marketing is, is, is good at describing certain aspects of production that don't necessarily reflect what it really is. They're very flowery and people want to hear good things. And the question is, it comes to the nitty gritty, the poor brewer that's got to use the hops. And if it's properly done, is it what the variety they ask for? Is it the alpha that they need so they don't have to keep changing the formula? All of these things are relative to trying to come up with a good beer and you got to help them you can't you know hurt them guys like me that know how to brew and and uh, and used to call on them to sell hops sure I want to sell hops but I don't want to sell them hops that they don't need or, or they're not going to use or perhaps would be applied badly for them I don't that's not my wasn't my job it's more important for me to make sure they had what they wanted and what they're right and and to tell them about the ones that were coming up I mean that's how galaxy got its start give it away and then you, then, you, then you describe it and they take a chance on it and they love it and they, they'll come back to you. You just have a rare perspective like top to bottom like the entire industry. I still love it though. <laughs> you still love it? <clears throat> I still love it, yep. It's a thrill when I go to a brewery or some guy's making beer, I don't care young, I don't care how old he is. I feel that enthusiasm that they have. I really I get excited. I, I feel very fortunate there's an industry that I love so much and if I can help them I'll always help them. I've helped my competitors even you know along the way. They don't they come into the business and they don't know anybody introducing all the customers anyway it doesn't matter to me. You know the least you can do is help them out. Huh. Well what is some advice that you could give to to the smaller craft guys right now? <sighs> Quality, sanitation, you don't second guess that sanitation in. You make sure your draft lines are cleaned. The, the, you know, you make sure that your whatever containers you use are properly sanitized before you put your product into it. Because you know you can't you can't foresee the unseen. Who's going to handle your product after you, and how is it going to be handled? Well, and even just handling your own product properly, because I've you know, witness brewers who are very, very diligent about the sanitization process when they're brewing, 
but then they'll step around to the back of the bar and pour a pint and you know like jam the nozzle way down into the pint right it has fruit flies and it's all sticky so you do need to be conscious you absolutely even you know and people laugh but you know they, these servers how many times you go in a bar where you see them fill a glass and they take and they, they have downspout and then they bury the product in the downspout that's got all that bacteria and it's been sitting there in the air and the bugs since the last time somebody poured something it's ridiculous that they just can't do that no absolutely and that's and that is one thing that i think the industry as a whole needs to address you know proper serving proper and that is you know becoming uh, that's becoming a point of emphasis with like the cicerone programs yeah. and things like that but if if craft beer if beer in general is going to continue to grow because it is kind of plateauing if it is you know going to continue to grow the craft beer segment anyways macro's been trending down but it's competing against wine and it's competing against liquor right and in milwaukee a couple of years ago i sat in on a panel and it was the the retired cfo of miller coors and i can't remember his name but the question came up you know how afraid are macro brewers how afraid are they of uh, craft breweries and he said they're not even really on our radar we're more concerned about losing market share to wine uh, and liquor. liquor absolutely absolutely and you know improper serving and improper pouring that's that doesn't do right it. you gotta have a good experience i mean <laughs> different parts of the country i've always witnessed these people that pour a glass of beer that have it's filled absolutely to the top with no foam and kills me because you know that first sense that foam that i thought you know i, I thought would present it so much better if it was had a little foam on it you, you mentioned earlier about Anheuser-Busch with all of their their craft beers that they've purchased, like ten, uh, like uh, what's it called, Ten Barrel, mm-hmm. Elysian, Goose Island. They uh, they they brew it in other places besides the home brewery that they purchased. Now they brew it in Fairfield, California. That I personally witnessed. They, they, that's where they do it in a lot of the brands. But basically. They've raised the bar. You got to give them credit. Yes, they have the money. They're a big company. They're a good company. And they've raised the bar of sanitation and how the beer is presented. And you know, they don't have any recalls usually that I can ever remember on any of their products. And it speaks it speaks well for the Elysians and for the Goose Islands and for the Ten Barrels. Mm-hmm. Um, before Ten Barrel changed hands, I believe it had a recall. And it was a recall because um, they had unfermented beer in a cans. I can't recall. Oh, the cans yeah. were, uh, beer cans were blowing up. Oh, it was yeast. Somehow yeast got into the cans or something. Mm-hmm. And they were blowing up. Anyway, mm-hmm. but Anheuser Bush, they their quality control systems are in place for a reason. They got skilled people that really know their stuff. And you know, if you're a craft brewer or you're a small brewer, you gotta respect that. And maybe you got to do some studying and do some homework about getting better at knowing sanitation and wellness. There's a lot of suppliers out there. If I was a brewer today, craft brewer, I would use the supplier skill set because each segment of those suppliers has the quality control aspects and the skill set for their product. And you just learn from all of them. Don't just look for the lower price. Don't just look for what they can do for you and let, let's get on for it, get on with it. You can learn from your suppliers. Hmm. 
uh, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about AB InBev buying Goose Island, Elysian, um, one, one of the positives is that the brewers that had been at those places after the acquisition, a lot of them left to go start their own yeah. their own smaller places. So there is that um, that information does get spread out. It does get diversified. So that's that's definitely one small positive, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 what comes to mind with a real small brewer in the start was, you know, Larry Sador crux the fermentation process. Larry and I have been friends for 40 years, and he's, he used to work for Olympia, for Rainier. Oh no, just Olympia, excuse me. And then he worked for Pabst, and then he went to work for Steiner, S.O. Steiner, and then he went to work for Deschutes. He started his own brewery, and he's very successful today. He's got two facilities, and uh, he makes a heck of a lot of good beers. And he knows about sanitation. He knows, he brought with it those skill sets, and that's what these young brewers are doing. That's why you gotta respect them. They got them really good. So the next home brewer, maybe the next craft brewer, maybe the next regional brewer, maybe the next national. So you gotta respect these guys and their learning curve. In today's world, it's made the supplier better. Like, you know, I'm not trying to commercialize anything, but they've got a, a new product out called Flex. Haas does. does, yeah, right. Haas does. And it's not a commercial. Anyway, it's a liquid CO2 extract that pours like water, can kept in the refrigerator, you dole it in in very small amounts. And is it aimed at the extract uses? The answer is probably not, because it's a little bit more expensive and it may cost you more to use this flex over CO2 extract. It's aimed at these guys who use pellets, who have vegetative matter, who use a centrifuge. 50% of that centrifuge that goes down the drain is beer, because of the, the vegetative matter from the hops there's, if you use Flex, and I've seen the product, we've, I've seen the art, they have an experimental brewery at us, and you can't tell the difference between a pellet, pelleted beer and this Flex. So what it's doing is saving the owners money because it's not going in the residuals of a centrifuge, it's not going down the drain. Your process loss is a lot less, it's a lot cleaner. And you can use it, you know, you can use it in the fermenter, you can use it in the in the kettle, you can use it in the cool, the, the cool ship. So it's not only providing those iso alphas; it's also providing other oils as well. Yeah, for I don't know, I don't know the complexities of it, but they've developed this thing. It's pretty slick. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've tasted a couple of beers down at the down at the facility. With yeah, it, yeah, yeah. They they they've really captured this, and they've got a, they do a lot of work. And I'm sure that Yakima Chief and all the others do the same, you know, do a lot of experimental work. Mm -hmm. uh, this, uh, was it one they called Cryopack or something? That they, they had that as well. Right. It's nothing that unique. It, I've heard, and maybe you can go back and talk about that a little bit too, but I've heard this, you know, recent time called like the Hops Arms Race. Everybody's coming out with top note oils and extracts and resins and hashes and yeah, cryo hops. Whether they're you know new or not is yeah that's not a new process it's just got a trick name but you know we primarily get a lot of our oils and things from uh, the UK because they used to process and and do that there's so many good things in hops and they're just able to separate some of the certain aspects of whether it be spicy whether it be 
earthy or you know, all of this, those very subtle things. Not only can they, they can take a hop and develop something like it, but they can also refine it and take it out and put it into oils. And oils go a long way. They're just very expensive. I don't know whether it's for the craft brewer or not, though. Hmm. I couldn't say. Craft brewers should look at this flex, though, to save you a lot of stuff. You know, save you a lot of, um, of uh, material and waste. And then offset it with something better as far as hops are concerned. There's so many easier ways to brew beer because the suppliers come up with novelty processes to do it. Mm -hmm. And you got to look at all of that. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you think there could be any negatives from an arms race like that? Uh, only oversaturation and over, uh, overdevelopment of a, a whole bunch of hops that start cannibalizing hops they've already got on the, on the floor that are worthy. I think people have a tendency to want the newest, best thing and stop looking at the older, better things that have been around. It's just like the Cascade. Cascade's been around for, you know, for a very long time. And so many times people would say, I don't know why you're even growing sand, uh, Cascades anymore. Nobody wants them. Then all of a sudden you can't get enough of them. I remember that very distinctly about 10 years ago. We were swimming in Cascades in June. In July, we couldn't find enough. And then, in, and then August and September, they were all processes and everything else. And, and, and the same thing happens to Centennial. Centennial is a very good hop, and we were, everybody was growing and expanding it, and then, uh, and then all of a sudden, there was too many of them, and people were still planting them, and now the price went way down. You know, people that look at price all the time, they don't understand that you want a livable wage for anybody that grows them or handles them, etc., because that's how development occurs. If you just look for the lowest price, it's, it's law of diminishing returns. You just wind up with nothing, and then you'll have to take what's left, and you don't want to ever get into that, not hmm. if you're a creative brewer with an imagination. Well, and one of the things that leads to such a liquid hop market is that if you expand acreage, you can get a harvest your very first year, right? And I've heard... 70%. 70%? Okay. And yeah, in Washington State, yeah. Right, right, right. Yep. 90% uh, the second year, 100% the third year. Absolutely. But that's how many other crops have that capability where you can just dig up a field, throw some roots in the ground, and you're getting a 70% return. Tell you not. There's not very few crops that I know of. I don't know of anything. Is that, is that a positive or a negative for hops? That's good. I think it's good, if you, especially on the development trail. I mean, it used to take 12 years to get approval for a new hop, start to finish, whether it's developing. But uh, uniquely, you have these experimental farms that have one hill of each experimental meristem that, that they've developed. And brewer walks out in the field, craft brewers walk out in the field, they smell them and taste them. I remember experiences in the field where I've been out there six hours with these brewers. You're dying of thirst, and it's hot as can be, but they want to smell and sniff and be surprising. Here's this field of hundreds of, of different Maristem starters, one hill, and they want to brew with it. And so what they do is we pack it up, we harvest it, pack it up, and send it to them in potato sacks to try. That's how Citra got started. That's how lots get started. And that still happens today. And you got to give kudos to these craft brewers. They're really a good job of sniffing out those hops. You mentioned Sabro 
are there any other hops that you really have your eye on coming up? Uh, there, there's, or not even new hops. Are there any older varieties that you think, you know, didn't get their rightful recognition? Well, uh, I don't think hops that were presented to the brewer. It's fair to say they 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 didn't get what they should get. The brewers have to be the best judge of that. It's the industry is driven by what the customer wants, and when they experimental brew. And make we make it available, and we make test beers that have that hop variety in it. They are the ones that have to determine whether it's worthy of expansion, and that means a contract. I, I remember one incident where I had a new hop, and I was trying to think of the name of the hop that I had, and I can't remember because there's so many in my head. And I presented it to a brewer, and I said, "Look, I, for I know there was an expressed interest in this, but if if you want me to grow it." we have to have a three-year contract of 2,000 pounds a year. And that wasn't a very big contract. And they said, well, suppose we don't like it. We brew with it, we don't like it. So tear the contract up. Well, they wanted it, expanded it, made it even more. So that's, how, that's what happened. That's how, it, that's how hops get started. It's, it's what the brewer wants. Yeah, but that you know that stability, that contract stability provides. Well, you gotta you, you gotta invest. I mean, uh, you gotta turn around and, and, and grow it. You gotta get someone to grow it. Now, Hans, for example, I can only they have a two thousand acre ranch, and they buy from about forty other growers. But that grower has to have a contract so he can grow it. I mean, that's the only intelligent way to execute uh, and expand your business. You don't want to do it on speculation. You want to do it with a contract in hand so that you know you have a ready market. What role does responsible contracting play in the hot market? It's, 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 well, the rule is don't overbuy. I always guided people and it, depend upon, it depended upon their size. If it was a rather large craft brewer, I'd say, look, buy three years in advance. Buy 33% of what you need the third year out. The second year out, buy half 66% of what you need. And the current year, have 100%. The, only, the whole idea behind that is that if your brand drops dead, you have a 33% leeway and forgiveness to adjust your contracts so you don't overbuy and tie up a lot of money in inventory. I think that's a really important point because that I see this, I see false information repeated on forums and online when new brewers are handing out advice a new brewery starts up and they say, hey guys, you know, what are these hop contract things? And I see time and time again, people suggest, oh, over contract 20% of what you think you're going to use, over contract 10% of what you think you're going to use. And then, oh, you can just turn around and sell it and make an easy buck. But you're saying contract less than you think. Contract less than you need. The success is misinterpreted and it can turn around. I know one large craft brewer that's now owned by a larger entity that wanted to order five years in advance, five varieties, and they were basing it on their current growth, which was 70 to 80% a year, and they were very bullish about it, and we wouldn't sell it to them. They said, what are we gonna do with these, what do we do with these contracts if your brand dries up Demand goes down, and you got all these hops. Who's go what are you going to do with them? Because we're not taking them back. 
I, I sort of forewarned him to use as reasons to not be so ambitious. Well, we, we think we managed to have him be less aggressive. Lo and behold, that brand dropped dead. The contracts they had, we had to work with them to adjust them and help them. Can you imagine if they had purchased what they wanted? It would have been a nightmare. Because then they go around and just try to recoup any cost. They recoup any cost, they either sell at a lower price, or they, they, they uh, don't try to execute the contract. There's a lot of things that, that are triggered if you, if you oversupply. Yes, are you taking a chance that the supply won't be there? Maybe, but if you spread it out over three years, 33%, 33%, 33%, and use that 33, 66, and 100 going backwards, you're pretty much assured that it's gonna grow with you and other people are gonna use it that way. And smaller breweries, I say, go out five years, go five years, go 20% a year. Just don't, you know, don't put yourself in a bad situation because hops are very emotional. I found that, you know, these big brewers that use 150,000 pounds of malt a day, they use 30 cars a month, railroad cars full a month, they're paying a huge bill. But once a year, brewers come out to pick hops, to select hops. It's an emotional thing. It's a one-shot deal for the whole year. And everybody gets involved, and everybody should get involved. But it's a very, very important decision. But you want to approach it intelligently. Is that one thing craft breweries need to learn, is the business side of things, and not just a, you know, attack things with ambition and... Right, and, and you know, it's, it's well, it, one thing you don't want to do is you don't want to get so involved in your success that you forget about what ifs. Somebody's got to be the grim reaper along the way to, to breed more intelligence into the outcome so that it, it's, it's not, you know, really hurt, it doesn't really hurt you. You don't want that to happen. Do you see a time in the near future in the craft beer industry where we're going to start shedding some of that growth? where some of these breweries are going to start closing their doors instead of opening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of brewers that are in love with brewing that don't know how to run a business. They may brew a wonderful beer, but they don't know how to run a business. Uh, in the beginning of the craft segment, there was uh, an old saying, if you want to run your competitor out, buy everything he makes, because usually they were underfinanced. Sad to say, but I think it's going to happen. You're going to start seeing, they're going to, it's down to 5% growth, but they're going to keep trading that 5% out. Brewery A is going to get it. Brewery B is going to suffer. Brewery C might take Brewery A's business. It's just, now it's, we're down, we're losing it to wine, we're losing it to whiskey. We're losing, there's a lot of beverage choices out there. Well, and in those other beverage choices, uh, wine and liquor, all that growth, I should say the majority of that growth is being seen in the in the sweeter end of the spectrum. So like, you know, the sweet liqueurs, whiskey is, you know, astronomical, but rosés, sparkling wines, uh, Moscato's on the wine. What can beer do to attract those sweeter drinkers? It's funny you should ask that. I, I, I think that the, they're, what they've got to do is provide the customer with a distinctive taste. Unfortunately, I think in the craft segment, there's not, not any particular loyalty to a brand. What there is is a loyalty to the next best taste, the next best thing. So you got to get creative. You got to come up with 
flavors or styles that perhaps you know at one time were tried but not successful. A lot of it has to do with part with the way it's marketed um, and how it's presented. And labeling is important. People, you know, if you're in a store, sometimes mostly women buy, make the decision to buy it, whether it's a, it's attractive enough. And we'd like to think husbands are or guys are more in charge of that, but it's not true. Because a lot of the beer sales are done through grocery stores. Yes, yeah, right. And and and. I was in this total wine and more in Sacramento. I couldn't believe there was two aisles of nothing but craft beers in cans and bottles. I, every brand you can think of. And amazing. And then they had a section where you could buy half barrels and you could buy. There's a huge opportunity out there, but there's a huge liability out there if you got, make the wrong beer and it doesn't stay on the shelf. And people finally buy it and they have a bad experience and they're not going to buy it again. Mm-hmm. Well, is there is there anything that you want to mention here in closing, or anything you want to go back and re- well, readdress? No, I think you know there's important things that whoever's listening to this that take a little bit more weight of sanitation, be more cognizant of the market you're serving, uh, and have make good decisions on the ingredients you use. And if you buy at the lowest price, you're going to get burnt. <laughs>